1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this
2: is Motley Fool Money.
1: It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. And joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio and Supernova, Simon Erickson. From Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman, And from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Seth Jason. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, 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 hey. We've got the latest results from Wall Street. We will go inside the White House with our guest, Nell Minow. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro. The U.S. economy added 178,000 jobs in November. The unemployment rate fell to 4.6%. That is a nine-year low. And oil stocks got a boost this week after OPEC agreed to cut production ever so slightly. Seth, Jason, I'll start with you. Everything's awesome.
2: Yeah. It's amazing how quickly America got great again. You could (laughs) could almost be forgiven for thinking maybe America didn't suck. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that was interesting news. The OPEC thing uh, I've been watching for a while. over at Hidden Gems, we had a fracking sand producer on the scorecard for quite a while, and of course, they they did a, a real roller coaster ride. Uh, and um, I never—I'll I give you the the story on OPEC and where oil prices are going—is is we don't know, which is why a while ago I sold this frac sand provider because it seemed to me that uh, stock prices in the space had kind of come become uh, uncoupled from the reality, and I would say that they still are. Nobody really knows where the price of oil is going to shake out. Will there be cheating on this OPEC deal? Will people providing services to the oil businesses in the United States uh, end up having to continue selling that stuff for less because the oil producers, the drillers, et cetera, have cut costs a lot. And some of that was squeezing your suppliers and your service providers. So I wouldn't say rush back into the oil patch right now because you need to see what happens first.
3: Yeah, I guess, Chris, the metric that caught my eye that was not on the front page was the labor force participation rate. These are the people that actually want to get a job, divided by the American population itself. And that's now at a 10-year low. It's at only at about 62.7%. So, a lot of people are just saying, hey, I'm good, you know, I'm going to retire, I'm going to take myself out of the pool, which is the denominator for that unemployment rate. Um, so you got less people that are actually looking for jobs out there, and it, so it's not too surprising to me that the employment rate's so low. It kind of
1: seems like, and I don't want to put pressure on the uh, the good people uh, at the you know, is it the Commerce Department or the Labor Department? It's the Commerce Department. It's the that... government, so don't <laughs> trust anything, right? <laughs> I don't want to put pressure on it, but it feels like they got to get a little bit better at the data part of this report because one of the things, I mean, Simon, when you talk about the labor participation rate, one of the things that's not really factored in there is when people leave the workforce. We're not sure what percent of those people are
2: leaving it because they're retiring. Exactly. And we've got thousands of people retiring every week. And there are a lot of pe- reasons people might leave. Some people may have been in the labor force just because you know they needed health insurance, things like that. So, these numbers are going to move around a lot. And I don't labor participation i think is an interesting thing to look at but to presume that that a low participation number or a dropping
4: participation number somehow bodes ill for the economy i think is is far too simple realistically as investors i know at least in, in my case i don't pay a huge amount of attention to the unemployment rate any given month or quarter or even year uh, whether you know unemployment rates at 4.6 percent or five percent probably isn't going to impact what companies I'm looking at. So I don't know I, I, I take all this with a grain of salt. It's not th- the first thing I, I look at uh, each month when these new statistics come out.
2: Yeah, it depends a little bit on where you're invested. If you get a tight sure. employment market, uh, then if you're invested in some industrials that need to do some hiring, they, they may need to pay a little bit more. Uh, but again, you'll find out what you'll find out the numbers that matter when you're uh, reading those earnings reports, not really from this stuff.
1: Howard Schultz, the longtime CEO of Starbucks, announced he is stepping down in early 2017. He will stay on as chairman of the board, and he is handing the reins to current President and Chief Operating Officer Kevin Johnson. Simon? What do we know about this guy?
3: Well, he was the uh, point guard for the Phoenix Suns, right, Chris? That's the Kevin Johnson. Okay, Mayor. That's what was I thought. I'm just sure I had my story right on that. I grew one. up in Minnesota. I probably knew 43 Kevin Johnsons. <laughs> uh, Kevin Johnson was was a tech guy previously. He was the VP, actually, of sales at Microsoft for several years, and then, of course, he was CEO of Juniper Networks. So he was the first guy that really set up all the Wi-Fi in Starbucks locations. If you remember that from a couple of years ago. Uh, Starbucks was a vendor of theirs when he was working for that, so it's going to be really interesting. I think one of his focuses, probably Chris, is how do you get these twelve million loyalty rewards members in the United States that Starbucks has to place even more orders or keep coming back more to increase that recurring revenue? Where how while, while Howard Schultz is going on and trying to premiumify the Starbucks brand. Yeah, I
1: mean, for for anyone who thought that Starbucks had already done that and that it was this amazing accomplishment that Howard Schultz and his team got people to pay four dollars for a fancy cup of coffee, uh, that's in some ways the most surprising part of this news. David is that Howard Schultz he's going to stay on as chairman. He's also going to be focusing on some super high end. Experience where now I can pay $12 for a cup of coffee?
4: Yeah, why not? Let's just double or triple the, the prices. <laughs> why not? Um, yeah, yeah, Starbucks has actually been working on these roastery and reserve concepts for a couple years now. But uh, Howard Schultz, now, now that he's transitioning from CEO to executive chairman, he's really going to be focusing exclusively on developing these premium. Brands. So, with the roastery, they're uh, bringing in small batches of rare and specialty coffees. Uh, The reserve program has a subscription program where people can sign up and get these special batches delivered to their front door. Uh, And they're looking at rolling out reserve bars or even reserve restaurants or stores uh, across the U.S. uh, where people can go in and get these specialty coffees. So, it'll be interesting to see, but I, I see this as a nice way for Starbucks to differentiate itself from increased competition from the likes of Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's, which continue to step up their game with coffee. This is one way Starbucks can set itself apart.
2: We have some innovators' dilemma issues there, right? So you got Ooh. dunks, you got dunks and McDonald's coming up at the low end and Starbucks retreating further and further into the high end, which is supposed to be the death knell of the company, right? <laughs> at the the high-end coffee, the very high-end coffee thing sounds so ridiculous to me that I'm sure it must be going to work. Because anytime <laughs> something seems so crazy to me, it, it has to work out. But to uh, you can see it's interesting to to try and imagine are they going to expand the tent for people who want some really special coffee that costs that much? Uh, are there that or are there already that many coffee? I'll, I'll use the word snob, trying not to use it pejoratively, but you know what I mean. Connoisseurs, let's call them instead enthusiasts that that just don't have the ability to get what they want. I mean, you look at what craft beers have done, and you know large uh, brewing. Uh, conglomerates buying some of the smaller brewers. I don't know that a lot of people say, Oof, Budweiser bought them, so I don't want that beer anymore. As long as Budweiser doesn't screw up with that beer, you know, that beer, people may continue to buy it. So, I mean, there, there's a market for these kinds of experiences. I don't know if the coffee one is as big as the one for booze, but we'll probably find out.
3: Yeah. And I mean, restaurants, which. I would consider Starbucks to be in the restaurant group. It's the sales are a function of price and traffic, right? They've got the traffic already from all these existing stores that they have. They're going after the price with these premium brands. Since Howard Schultz took Starbucks public
1: in 1992, the stock has increased over 170 times in value. Not bad just in case you were wondering how (laughs) long-term buy-and-hold investing works. You can guess
2: how much of that we all hold, because we're (laughs) sitting in here working like slobs.
1: (laughs) Third quarter profits for Ulta Salon, cosmetics and fragrance came in higher than expected. Their guidance looked good, too, David. Um, This stock seems like, if it is not in the perfect range right now, um, they're getting close. And by that, I mean they seem like they are in a spot where they need to deliver blowout earnings, perfect earnings every quarter, because the stock has gone up so much recently.
4: Oh, yeah. Expectations are very high for the company, and for good reason. Uh, Ulta Beauty is really the, the crown jewel of specialty retail. Uh, sales were up 24%. Same-store sales up 14%. Online sales, or e-commerce business, up 59%. And Earnings are growing along with that. And they raised guidance for the year. So, these are just stellar results, especially when you consider the struggling retail environment overall. Uh, a lot of the company's success has been driven by their in-store services, so stuff like uh, eyebrow care, hair, um, skin, things like that. And then also a loyalty program. So, Simon mentioned Starbucks loyalty program, which has 12 million members. Ulta Salon has almost 22 million members right now, and that grew 28% in the latest quarter. So 22 million? 22 million. So, mm-hmm. they're they're doing okay. And overall. by the
2: looks of us, uh, people, can't, people can't see us <laughs> through the microphone. We probably could use, use wow, some of that. You, can, you yeah. can
4: tell we need to get over there. Yeah, if we ever amp up video, we'll have to visit Ulta first. I can't tell if
1: I'm supremely impressed by what Ulta Salon is doing or depressed by Starbucks only having 12 million people <laughs> in a coffee, uh, coffee loyalty program.
4: Well, the bright side to this is that uh, Ulta's uh, CEO, Mary Dillon, actually joined the board of directors of, of Starbucks earlier this year, so maybe, maybe she'll help Starbucks amp that up.
1: Shares of guests falling at more than 15% this week after the apparel retailer missed on third-quarter earnings and revenue. Uh, And Seth, uh, same-store sales, such a key metric,
2: down nearly 5% in North America. Well, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out why. If you spend all your money at Alta, you don't have anything left for clothes. <laughs> but, but seriously, uh, the North American this is an interesting result because results in Europe uh, were actually fairly decent, uh, growing pretty strongly across the board. Typically, with gas, you have a few European countries doing well, some doing not so well. Actually, doing well across the board there. Uh, Asia doing fairly well, too, outside of Hong Kong and Macau, which are just having uh, their Tourist-based, and they're they're having reduced tourism. In North America, um, volumes were the same. So the sales drop in North America is entirely attributable to two things. One is that there was warmer weather, so the mix of products changed. People were buying less expensive stuff because of warmer weather stuff is apparently less expensive. And also, having to have everything on sale, management said, you know, pretty much that North American apparel environment. Is all sale all the time, and that's not the case in Europe. It's just seasonal sales. And if you kind of survey uh, retail in the U.S. as many of us do following stocks, you can kind of, this sounds awfully familiar. Unless you're like Under Armour or Lululemon, you're not selling anything to anybody. They're waiting around for a sale. And uh, I mean that's that's a challenge for gas. It's a challenge for every company. And kind of going along with this is that Guest has is having growth with uh, its concept G by gas, which is the B and C mall concept, lower priced, doing better. So it's really a function of. Uh, f- what do American consumers need to see before they're buying clothes for the most part? in most stores, it's they need to see a sale.
1: Well, and we saw signs of this earlier in the fall when, I believe it was Macy's came out and was talking about how um, their sort of autumnal uh, clothing wasn't really moving because of the warmer weather. So, not a surprise that there's that ripple effect throughout the entire
2: apparel retail industry. Yeah, I mean, you'll see it there. Uh, I expected to be more disappointed with the guest results than I was once I, I read about, you know, guest sells 60% of its stuff uh, overseas now, and they're moving more in that direction. They're also putting their, uh, their investment in that direction. So they know what's going on, and they're obviously trying to fix the North America results but uh, but things weren't as bad as that 11 to 12% drop on the day of earnings or the day after earnings would have would indicate
1: coming up it's not the worst named public company but it's probably on the short list stay right here you're listening to Motley Fool Money yeah. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money Chris Hill here in studio with Seth Jason Simon Erickson and David Kretzmann third quarter revenue for Splunk grew 40%. Splunk is the cloud-based business intelligence platform company <laughs> with the really unfortunate name. Um, I love the name. <laughs> And it comes from where? Only one in the room that I think loves this name. Uh, Maybe the only one on the East Coast who loves this name. (laughs)
3: Uh, To to
2: spelunk, Chris, is to go cave diving. Uh
3: Splunk named their company Splunk because they are data diving.
2: Yeah, but removing most of the vowels from an
3: already bad word (laughs) doesn't improve it.
1: Um, This quarter, uh, I keep reading stories about how great the quarter was, uh, which makes me wonder why the stock fell nearly 10% this week. Unexplainable to me.
3: I love the quarter results. Uh, We saw 34% in license revenue, and we saw 3X growth in the cloud, which is, uh, of course, Amazon Web Services. They're they're building the codes for that. This is a company that understands what its customers want to look at. They're kind of focusing on unstructured data analytics, which is something that the Microsofts and the IBMs and the Oracles of the world have not addressed and and been able to crack that code in the past. And you've got a CEO in there now at Splunk that is just a sales-driven guy that's on a plane 200 days a year and the result of that is he knows what customers want and you see 70% of bookings again from existing customers very very high retention rates and the orders are getting larger that to me is an equation for success for a company that's subscription based like this so in
1: terms of the stock is is this is part of what we're seeing this week a valuation reaction, or is this not a pricey stock?
3: Yeah, anything that's software-as-a-service or operating in the cloud is always going to be getting a premium val- valuation. So, you'll see a lot of volatility in names like this one and Viva Systems, you know, the kind of companies that we follow, a lot of those in Rule Breakers. I think that you're going to have to just kind of get used to seeing that up and down of the stock price, but the performance for me, which is what I was looking at, was very good. Sticking with the theme, cloud storage
1: company Box raised guidance for the fiscal year. This was after a third quarter report that came in better than expected. I'm not rooting against these guys, David, but uh, I did notice that they're competing with the likes of IBM and Microsoft.
4: Yeah, it makes it a tricky (laughs) space. This is one of many cloud companies, so they're enabling file sharing and collaboration with enterprises. It seems like there's a dozen companies doing this, including IBM and Microsoft. Except it's two dozen? Maybe <laughs> Right, <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah, this is really a subscription uh, business, so Box needs to gain new customers and retain those customers. And they're doing a pretty good job with that. They have 69,000 customers, paying customers now. Sales were up 31% for the quarter. But their sales growth is decelerating, and in the meantime, they're still not making money. They're losing money, they're burning cash. They've burned $50 million in cash over the past year. When sales are decelerating and stock-based compensation is causing the diluted share count to increase, I I struggle to see where investors uh will win in the end here.
2: Yeah, it's it's cloud storage, I mean that's sort of your only gig, unless you're doing something like Splunk over there <laughs> where you you're, you have a service attached to your cloud based uh activity. I don't understand what you what you get if you're competing with you know Google Drive, which is free. Microsoft gives a ton of space to anybody who's got Microsoft Office, and so it's really hard to imagine what the differentiator is for a company like Box, except for you know people already have it.
4: Yeah. And, and it's riskier in the meantime because they, they are still unprofitable. They're still burning cash, so you can expect the stock to be volatile. The, the company has uh, a good amount of roadblocks in front of it to, to reach profitability.
3: Uh, lastly, Seth, do you like the company name?
2: Which Box? <laughs> yes.
4: Yeah, I do. I love it. It's kind of a throwback.
2: I've got a startup. I'm going to give you guys the elevator pitch after this, but it's just going to be called Table. Actually, that probably exists already. How about Lens?
1: Both of these actually sound like they are acquisition targets for different reasons. Box, because of their financial situation, Splunk actually sounds like they, you know, if they're doing something that well, that the Microsofts and Oracle's of the world are not doing. It sounds like the Microsoft or Oracle might want to have a conversation.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because it's a disruptive company, and I say that um, because they're looking at machine data, which is not the structured data that's in rows and columns that the Microsofts and the Oracle's of the world have gotten used to. So it's kind of changing the uh, the business of those companies that made billions of dollars off of. They don't want to mess that up if they can keep the cash cow running.
1: Yum! Brands and Pepsi are teaming up once again in the best possible way. Yum! is the parent company of Taco Bell. Pepsi is the parent company of Frito-Lay. And this week, Taco Bell unveiled the Cheetos Quesadilla. That's right, guys. A Quesadilla stuffed with Jalapeno Cheetos. Which give it that satisfying crunch? Oh, jalapeno Cheetos! That's, yeah.
2: See, now that's, you're interested. That's an upgrade. I'm not a Cheeto fan, but you make them so hot that I can't taste them, and I might be interested.
1: It's only available in the Philippines, so no. e- either we're gonna do a <laughs> Are you re- kidding?
2: Yes, either either we're doing <laughs> a road trip,
1: or we're gonna need a listener in the Philippines to send us some information. We've got to
2: have somebody there.
1: Email us radio at fool and let us know how this is. I will just
2: point oh, out Facebook Live that for us
1: <laughs> might have to. I will just point out that people made fun of the Doritos Locos Tacos. Not and, me. Taco Bell sold 100 million of those. Those are pretty good. In the first 10 weeks.
2: I will eat any kind of Dorito all day long.
1: Let's go to our gourmet behind the glass, Steve Brodo. Steve, if I guaranteed you passage to the Philippines (laughs) and a place to stay, are you in on the Cheetos quesadilla?
0: Most certainly
2: not. It sounds (laughs) disgusting. Really? (laughs) Not for me, no. Uh, I'm going to make one of those tonight. Uh, I well, it, it doesn't actually sound me, like the kind of thing you could make <laughs> that, at home. That gets me yeah. out of work early if I'm going to do that, right? This is uh, it's research. You know re-search. what? Research. Do a little so, research.
1: Visualize my finger quotes. And then let's get let's get you back in the studio and and you can report back. All right. Set, After I get out of the hospital. So <laughs> <Seth> Jason, David <laughs> Kressman, Simon Erickson, guys, we will see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, Nell yes. Minow takes us to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Nell Minow is a corporate governance expert. She's vice chair of Value Edge Advisors. She's also the film critic known as the movie mom, and she joins me now. Always good to talk to you, Nell.
0: Well, thank you. I'm always glad to be on the show.
1: We have had you on this show more than any other guest, (laughs) and there are times when the big thing we want to talk to you about is in the corporate world. There are times when it's in the movie world I think this is the first time where the big thing we want to talk to you about is neither of those. And it's something we mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the show. And that is the fact that your father, Newton Minow, was just awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in a ceremony at the White House. This is the highest civilian honor in our nation. Let me start with this. How'd you find out he was going to get it?
0: It's a little strange. I was... Uh, at a party at the White House. I was actually representing my parents who were uh, invited, and I had never met the president, and I met him for the first time in September. And he took me aside and he said, hey, listen, we've got something really exciting. And he told me that my dad was going to be getting the Medal of Freedom and maybe promised not to tell anyone in my family. So for about six or seven weeks, I knew about it, and I couldn't say anything to anybody, and it was killing me.
1: I was going to say, that's exciting, and then a terrible burden.
0: It was a terrible burden. If I was not just a patriotic American, I would definitely have told them. And so when my father called to say, I've got a big surprise for you, I said, well, I've got a big surprise for you. I knew about it already.
1: So you went to the White House for the ceremony. Yeah. What was it like?
0: Well, it was surreal. Um, You sort of have to be from Washington to appreciate this part, because my parents are both 90, and I was allowed to drive them an hour and a half before the ceremony for the rehearsal. And They had it had me park five feet from the door of the White House. Do you Mm. know how many checkpoints you have to go through to be able to do that?
1: That is about as uh, nice a perk as you're going to find in Washington D.C. On
0: earth, I think I was parking like the Obama's car and then my car, and so I so I parked my you know my little Honda and uh, I got out of the car and I'm you know just reflexively going to lock it and I'm like you know what I think I'm good I don't really need to worry about that so I went into the White House right behind Robert De Niro, and all of the awardees were in one room together, and that means Ellen DeGeneres, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Jordan, Bill and Melinda Gates, Tom Hanks, Frank Gehry, the architect... Uh, and about three people there that you might not know the names of, but, you know, who were just incredibly impressive people. And we're all just sort of hanging out there while they're getting everything set up for the rehearsal. And um, so Ellen DeGeneres decided that we should do a uh, mannequin challenge video. And I stood where I thought I was as out of the way as possible so that I could also film a little bit about what they were doing and ended up in Ellen DeGeneres' video which has been now shown all over the world. So there's like Diana Ross, Tom Hanks, Robert De Niro, the Bill and Melinda Gates, the two basketball players, Bruce Springsteen, and my mom and me.
1: <laughs> now, all the people you just mentioned, you're in the same room with them. You can't talk to all of them. You don't, you, I can't imagine you had time to talk to all of them. So who did you spend time with and how did you choose?
0: Um, I just tried to be friendly to you know it was like being in a any kind of a situation stuck in an elevator with somebody where you know you wouldn't normally be talking to them but there you all are and so it was a lot of you know I would love to talk to Robert De Niro and Tom Hanks about their careers but that was not the place so it was a lot of isn't it exciting to be in the white house and congratulations on this wonderful honor um for me i was very excited to talk to diana ross's daughter tracy ellis ross i'm a big fan of her tv show blackish Uh, So I talked to her. I talked to Ellen DeGeneres' wife, Portia, um, and uh, I talked to uh, Tom Hanks' wife, uh, Rita Wilson, because it was important to me that, you know, not to rush by people on the way to their other people, the people who are getting the awards. I talked to Bill and Melinda Gates, who just were absolutely lovely. Everybody, I, t- I talked to Michael Jordan. Everybody could not have been nicer. Oh, uh, Lorne Michaels was another one who was getting an award. And so it's just, uh, you know, chatted a little bit, said, I, I love your work. I tried to be very specific about what I liked about their work. And it was very nice. And a couple of people said I was the only person ever to compliment them on the things that I complimented them on, so that was nice.
1: Did you talk to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or was the height differential just a, a, a non-starter? I didn't have
0: a step to get up there. One of the highlights of the event was certainly seeing President Obama, who is not a short guy, he's a very tall guy, try to put the medal over the head of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We had to kind of bend all the way down. And then the hair of Diana Ross was the other big uh, obstacle.
1: All right, we have to move on to... Well, you know, business as usual, corporate governance and movies. um, Let's start with corporate governance. Uh, As you're well aware, we've had a presidential election. We have a president-elect. And presumably, starting in 2017, there will be changes coming for the banking industry, the financial services industry, and therefore for individual investors. So, from a corporate governance perspective, what are a couple of things that individual investors should be watching out for?
0: Well, one thing you should watch out for is uh, who's coming into the SEC since Mary Jo White has announced that she's leaving. Uh, The SEC, of course, is an independent agency, meaning that if she wanted to stay, she could. So that means that the shift at the SEC is coming uh, sooner than it uh, it otherwise might. And that means that we may see some of the implementation of the shareholder protections uh, that came uh, in uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank rolled back a little bit. Uh, It's going to be hard to predict because during the campaign, uh, Donald Trump, uh, famously on all sides of every issue, was both very, very critical of Wall Street, which really resonated with a lot of voters, but also very critical of the post-meltdown reforms. And so I think the general thought is that with he's, they've talked about possibly Paul Atkins coming in. Paul Atkins, in my opinion, is very much... Um, uh, the, the spokesperson for the uh, corporate executive point of view, not the corporation point of view, but basically the executives at the top. And I think if Atkins comes in, you can look to see the rollback of a lot of uh, reforms for example, Sherald uh, has been trying for quite a long time to get better disclosure of political contributions. The SEC received many, many times more uh, comments on that issue than anything that they've ever done before. I think that's a dead duck uh, if, uh, if Trump proceeds as, as expected.
1: A lot has been written about the potential conflicts of interest in Donald Trump's business ventures he's going to be holding uh, an event, possibly a press conference, uh, later in December. Where do you see this going? Because, on the one hand, it does seem like we've had a couple of centuries' worth of uh, systems put in place for presidents to set aside their business interests. So, in theory, it should be pretty cut and dry. Uh, But on the other hand, this is uh, an unprecedented election we've just gone through, so I I sort of feel like nothing would surprise me.
0: It's unprecedented in every way. I think the closest parallels that we've seen to the particular situation he's in are Jimmy Carter, who had the family peanut business, and uh, maybe Penny Pritzker, the uh, Secretary of Commerce, and both of those uh, people had businesses that were not super liquid, It was not like a stock portfolio where you could easily put it into a blind trust, turn it all over, and then you're pretty much set. When you've got uh, real property, when you've got real estate and and other properties like that, and properties that are specifically tied to your name, like licensing, which is a big part of the Trump empire, um, it's almost impossible to figure out how to unscramble that egg. Uh, And uh, it's a real challenge for the uh, ethics council, uh, who's probably got the toughest job in the Trump administration. Um, furthermore, Trump originally, even though he promised during the campaign that he was going to uh, disassociate himself from any of his uh, holdings, um, sort of backed off from that a little bit, which really riled everybody up. Uh, there's Professor Jennifer Tobb, the author of the wonderful book about the financial meltdown, other people's houses, uh, who really has made this a, a personal uh, a quest of hers and with the hashtag divest Donald. Uh, and so now it looks like he's, Listened to some of the lawyers. He's listened to some of the uh, political advisors, and he understands that this would be at at least the, a, a huge distraction, and at and at most a constitutional violation of a clause that maybe we spent six seconds on in law school, never come up before, but that does prevent a um, an executive, the the chief executive of the country, from taking essentially, bribes and gifts from foreign governments. And since he has these international operations, that's a real risk. How he's going to do it, that's, you know, the devil's in the details Sarah. and it's going to be very, very, very difficult. Um, in my opinion, the cleanest and easiest way to do it would be to appoint a uh, an independent trustee. Uh, they've talked about Ken Feinberg, uh, who is... Uh, Well-known for doing complicated transactions like this, uh, oversaw the 9-11 fund and the BP funds, uh, and just turned it over to him and let him um, do it. But uh, it is certainly a huge, huge problem. And honestly, I don't think that the Trump people thought they were going to win, and I don't think they gave it any thought. Uh
1: before we get to movies i want to ask you about something and there's been a lot of coverage recently about the retail industry with black friday and cyber monday and one story that's sort of gotten lost in all of that uh, a conservative organization called the american family association has been calling for a boycott of target and ceo brian cornell has essentially said we're not backing down on our support of LGBTQ inclusive policies. And I'm curious, as you watch this play out, if you think that Target's business is going to be adversely impacted.
0: I don't think so. Uh, I was thrilled with that announcement from Target. I think that uh, being a bigot is not good business. Uh, Target found that out itself uh, some years ago when they've always been very, very good on the issues, but they did make a political contribution at one point to a candidate who was not good on LGBT uh, issues, and uh, they got a lot of very bad publicity and a lot of picketers for that. So I think that that is strictly a business decision on their part and a very good one. They will bring in more people with that policy than they will lose. And uh, you you never make a mistake by being inclusive.
1: Turning to movies, i got to start with Moana, which is uh, the Disney animated film. It's currently number one at the box office. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a score of 98%. And I'm not trying to pick on you now, but you gave it a B plus, And I'm just I'm just curious with you know the, the the wisdom of crowds giving it essentially an A plus. What's it take for you to give it an A?
0: Now you've got to look at the Rotten Tomatoes algorithm, because that is not what the what the wisdom of crowds gives it. The wisdom of crowds it, it my B plus was included in that uh ninety eight percent rating. Anything over a B minus and above is considered a positive for the purposes. So they mean that 98% of the people gave it a B minus or better.
1: Well, I was never good at algorithms, no.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Uh it's not my first or second favorite animated film of the year. I've just been doing my end of year list and I would say that Disney's other films Utopia uh, was a better film, and uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, I'm a big fan of Leica. Those are my two favorites of the year. Um, Trolls is also very good, but I did love Moana. How are you not going to love Moana? It's a wonderful story, uh, and the one crucial point I would make about the movie is this. You need to stay all the way to the end of the credits, all the way to the end, and then there's an extra scene that is definitely worth the wait.
1: This is the time of year when the serious films that are making a run at a Best Picture nomination are starting to get some buzz, and maybe it's just the advertising, but it it seems like all I'm seeing is promotions for Moana, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Rogue One, the new Star Wars story that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, For anyone who's looking for a more serious film, what should we be keeping our eyes out for?
0: There are great choices. This is the time of year for it. Manchester by the Sea, which the National Board of Review just picked as their best film of the year, is a beautiful meditation on Grief and Loss, great performances by uh, Casey Affleck, Michelle Williams, absolutely gorgeously done by uh, one of the best uh, writer-directors out there, Kenneth Lonergan. Fences just absolutely knocked me out. It's the August Wilson play uh, directed by and starring Denzel Washington with Viola Davis. Uh, I thought it was a stunning piece of work, really a masterpiece. Um, And uh, then if you just want kind of a feel-good movie, uh, Hidden Figures. The true story of three african-american mathematicians who were crucial to the uh, early days of nasa uh it is just wonderfully done um moonlight is another great one uh based on a true story of a young boy growing up in uh, the projects in miami with a drug addicted mother uh it takes place in three acts his child as a teen as an adult played by three different actors and it's just extremely well done a beautiful film. So yeah, there are a lot of great things. Oh, and loving, uh, loving, uh, the true story of the couple whose name was actually loving. Uh, and she was part black, part native American. He was white when they got married in 1958 in Virginia. That was illegal. And they took it to the Supreme court. And it was not until 1967 that the Supreme court ruled that you could not restrict marriage based on race. And, um, so uh yeah those are all terrific films.
1: Uh, last question then I'll let you go. I'm I'm already uh, circling the dates for the holiday movies to watch with my kids, uh, the classics like Elf and and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um what's one other holiday movie that you think is special?
0: My all-time favorite is still uh a Christmas Carol, in just about any version, but I really love the Alistair Sim British version from the 50s, the MGM version, the Mr. Magoo version. And of course, every family has to watch A Christmas Story.
1: Oh, yeah. That's that's also in the list of classics. And when you're talking about A Christmas Carol, my favorite is the Bill Murray version, Scrooge.
0: (laughs) That's a good one, too. And the Muppet version is good. And the George C. Scott version and the Patrick Stewart version, they're all good. I watch them all.
1: Corporate Governance, movies, and so much more. Nell Minow, thank you, as always.
0: My pleasure. Bye-bye.
3: Caroling, caroling, now we go. Christmas bells are ringing. Cowling, cowling through the
2: snow, Christmas bells are
1: ringing. Coming up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, no buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Seth Jason, David Kretzman, and Simon Erickson. Before we get to the stocks on our radar, guys, we've talked before about the Amazon Echo and the flash briefing, the news briefing that we do on a daily basis here at the Motley Fool. Uh, now, I'm happy to announce the brand new skill from the Motley Fool which you can get on your Amazon Echo. You can get stock quotes, create a watch list, ask Alexa how your portfolio is doing. For all the details, and this is free, by the way, for all the details, go to fool.com slash Alexa and check it out. All right. David Kretzmann, you're up first. Uh, what are you looking at this week?
4: I'm looking at National Beverage, ticker F I Z Z. This is the beverage company behind soft drink brands like Shasta and Fago, little offbeat brands. And they're also rapidly growing in the sparkling water category with its LaCroix uh, brand. So sales were up 14% and net income up over 60% in the latest quarter. The company has really bizarre press releases. So the CEO, Nick <laughs> Caparella, in the latest press release, he says the company is in the cockpit of innovation with the yoke in our hands. <laughs> So that's national beverage. I'm wow. speechless. So Steve Broido right wants
2: everybody to know that he's a hobby pilot. Doesn't right? He? I guess. Steve, question about national beverage. What is the
0: difference between Crush and Fanta?
4: Man, I have no. That's over my my pay grade, Steve. You have <laughs> to go somewhere else. One teaspoon of sugar.
1: <laughs> so Jason, what are you looking at this week?
2: Uh, geez, almost everything in the RV business. It looks like um, we have uh, Thor Industries reported recently uh, that you know their sales were while well, they were up huge, uh, but they had uh, just purchased Jayco, and uh, and so but they're still we're growing uh, trailer and RV sales in the neighborhood of you know somewhere in the t- low twenty percent range, high teens, and they're getting huge bookings. And uh, a lot of this was lower-priced, smaller RVs, so the uh, margins are are changing a little bit. On the other hand, uh, people seem to be buying a ton of RVs, and I think they're going to keep buying a ton of RVs for the next couple of few years. And the ticker? Thor Industries is THO.
0: Steve? Where does recurring revenue come from with an RV company?
2: Uh, recurring revenue is harder to come by uh, for you know for a somebody who makes uh, the RVs themselves. If you want recurring revenue in the RV industry, you need to look at Drew Industries, which makes aftermarket parts as well as uh, original equipment parts. Simon
1: Erickson, what are you looking
3: at,
2: Chris? I'm going with Idex Laboratories. Ticker is
3: IDXX. They are the world's largest manufacturer of tests and services for the veterinarian market. So, needless to say, I think this is the top dog in the space. <sighs> They control nearly 40% market share. Sorry about that, everyone. In the companion animal market, uh, and because they've got these established relationships with vets already, about 87% of revenue is recurring in nature. i really like to see that for business. Steve?
0: Who really pays for this? Is it the consumer? Is it the vet? Who's paying for Largely this Largely for
3: consumer right now, Steve, but we are starting to see veterinary insurance picking up as a, as a trend in recent years. Steve, you got a stock you
1: like?
2: I want to go RVing with Seth Jason.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I want a video of your
1: That adventure. would be a great road trip. trip.
2: <laughs> road trip. Just, <laughs> right. Steve, let's ditch the kids and do this.
1: All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.